Welcome back to another episode of the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and we're broadcasting from just outside of Washington, D.C. Today's show is brought to you by Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is the personal style service for men and women that evolves with your tastes, needs, and lifestyle. We're sponsored today by Brooklinen. Brooklinen was built to deliver simple, beautiful, high-quality home essentials at a fair price. Please check out our sponsors today. Support them as they enthusiastically support the show. Today we are bringing you our 738th episode, and in today's show we're going to discuss the dreams and aspirations that sometimes face off against greater values as we delve into the never-built ski resort envisioned by Walt Disney. Yep, that's right, a ski resort by Walt Disney. We're joined today by authors Catherine Mayer and Greg Glasgow to discuss their new book, Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort That Never Was. Last week in our 737th episode, we had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Howard Chang about his 40-year battle with psoriasis and the healthcare inequities people of color face. Two weeks ago, we discussed family practice in the emerging field of cannabis medicine with Dr. Bridget Cole-Williams. If you missed these compelling episodes or wish to revisit any of our previous shows, please check out our entire back catalog there for you free at Not Old. Better.com. Just Google Not Hold Better and you will find everything you need to know about us. I mentioned the new book titled Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort that Never Was. And our guests, Catherine Mayer and Greg Glasgow, we will be discussing the story of Walt Disney's vision, which touches on the idea of late-in-life dreams and how those can conflict with broader societal concerns which is a subject relevant to our Not Old Better Show audience. We're going to talk about environmental stewardship. As adults over 60, many of our listeners might be interested in leaving a legacy for the next generation. This story touches on the importance of environmental protection, a legacy that impacts everyone. There's also a cultural legacy. This story also coincides with the 100th anniversary of the Disney Company, offering a moment to reflect on the cultural impact that one person or organization can have over a century. Walt Disney's heart began to beat heavier as he started up the hill. The slope wasn't steep, but even the slightest incline seemed to be a challenge for him these days. Surrounded by towering trees and accompanied by the sounds of birdsong, Walt took slow steps as he made his way to the top of the rise. It was September 19, 1966, and Walt had gathered members of the press in California's Mineral King Valley to tell them about his latest venture, the passion project he had been quietly working on for the past six years. Convinced the Disney company should add a ski resort to its growing experiential entertainment empire, Walt had chosen Mineral King as the perfect spot for a year-round outdoor tourism mecca that would capture the magic of the mountains in true Disney fashion. Clad in a sweater vest, heavy camping jacket, and woolen trousers, Walt, now 64, was prepared for the cold September day. A fedora cap shielded his eyes from the heavy rain droplets that were falling intermittently, but the warm outfit appeared to be doing little to make him feel better as he walked toward the clearing. Finally taking a seat at a white folding table placed between two large trees in a flat part of the valley, Walt looked around to see the reporters eagerly waiting to hear about his vision for the natural wonderland that surrounded them. 
He was never more in his element than when he was in front of a crowd sharing his latest dream. And this dream was one he was determined to turn into a reality despite his failing health and despite the fact that the project was attracting the ire of a growing environmentalist movement that was hell-bent on ensuring his vision would be as unlikely to happen as a real-life flying elephant or magical fairy godmother. That is our guest today, Greg Glasgow, reading from the new book he's co-authored with our other guest today, Catherine Mayer. The title of the new book and subject of our interview is Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort that Never Was. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better show on radio and podcast authors, Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer. Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, welcome to the program. Thanks, Paul. Happy to be here. So excited. Yeah, me too. I really appreciate it. I I will tell you that this book, Disneyland on the Mountain, your new book, which, um, let's see, I believe it's got a September publication date. So I've got an advanced reader copy. I've just enjoyed it. We're going to put links so that our audience can find out everything about this for pre-orders and uh, get get familiar with it real quick. But it's it's just a wonderful story. By congratulations to both of you, and and I'll just tell you right out of the gate, I'm excited to talk to you about this book. <laughs> oh, uh, thank, thank you. you so much, Paul. You're excited to talk to you too. Good. Well, great. Well, let's just jump right in because. Greg, you you so generously read a passage, and and we appreciate that. Our audience always loves that. You mentioned Walt, of course, Walt Disney, and all that he did in in terms of establishing this great, you know, um, wonderful Disney uh, kingdom and the Disney company. What inspired him to go forward with this Mineral King Resort project? And and I guess because you, you kind of gave us a date there in that in that reading of, of 66. How did the 1960 Olympics play a role in, in all of this, too? It's a great, great kind of lead in. Yeah, that was definitely sort of a surprise to us doing the research. So, yeah, as you said, Mineral King, California was kind of the area where this resort was to be built. And, yeah, Walt was a skier, sort of a longtime skier. He never considered himself a great skier, but he really had fun doing it. And yeah, in 1960, he had been asked to serve as chairman of pageantry for the Winter Olympics, which were in California at a resort called Squaw Valley. And so he was in charge of the opening and closing ceremonies and some of the victory ceremonies and some of the other design elements. But he also really got involved in providing entertainment for the athletes. So bringing up people from Hollywood, you know, with all his connections, bringing up actors and singers and different people at night to entertain the athletes. So while all this was happening, he sort of just started thinking about, you know, this was only five years after Disneyland had opened and looking around at Squaw Valley and thinking, I think I could do this better and getting some ideas and what he was doing there at the Olympics with the entertainment. And that really kind of sowed the seed for what would become, you know, the Mineral King Resort concept. And it was really soon after that that he started looking around for sites in California and, and, you know, settled on Mineral King as kind of the perfect one. Sounds good to me. I, you know, I'm a lifelong skier. I love being outside. Walt has just a, you know, kind of mystique about him as, as Disney did, but environmentalists didn't necessarily agree. Tell us about this years long environmental battle and some of the the concerns and the challenges faced in kind of bringing this about. It was it was so intense and, and so long, like you said. I think the crux of it was really 
So a lot of the opposition was led by the Sierra Club, who was and is still to this day one of the largest environmental groups um, in the world. And they, you know, it was actually Mineral King, this Mineral King area in California was actually one of their favorite spots. It was right next to Sequoia National Park. And spoiler alert, it's actually part of Sequoia National Park um, right now. <laughs> this is kind of how the story ends. But, um, you know, they really enjoyed to go there to hike and to fish and camp and so a lot of that, you know, at the beginning was, was kind of was that they didn't want, of course, this area to be extremely developed. They didn't want tons of whirling machinery and slopes and thousands of visitors there. Um, you know, and the, the bigger crux of this was that this was we're talking about, obviously, the 1960s and into the 1970s. There's the environmental movement was really growing at this time, you know, along with the women's rights movement, the civil rights movement. There was a lot of conversation about pollution and, and clean air, clean water, all that kind of stuff. The, the first Earth Day was around this time. And a lot of it was we don't need every area to be developed. We don't want every area to be developed. We want to keep some of these areas wild and we don't need thousands of people to visit. And I think the Disney company was kind of a prime target because they had just developed Disneyland at this time and they had seen the area around Anaheim kind of become this, what they considered to be cheesy, developed, lots of motels, these cheesy gift shops, stuff like that, that had sprung up in Disneyland's wake. And they certainly did not want the same thing to happen to the Mineral King, California area. Thank you for that. And so, yeah, not to, you know, do not mess around with um, the, the activism of the day and, and the Sierra Club. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. And so this went, this decision ultimately went all the way to the Supreme Court. And and I wonder if you talk a little bit about that, but then say, say to us all, what, what implications for other projects? Because this was a big deal throughout the land. Yeah, it really was. It, you know, got tons of coverage. Really, you know, the grassroots protests against this project started pretty much immediately when it was announced in 1965. And really, you know, despite the different hiking protests and letter writing campaigns and other things that the Sierra Club did, nothing really got a lot of traction as far as stopping the resort. So in 1969, they started looking into their sort of legal options and they initially filed for an injunction against the resort, which they got a temporary injunction in 69, which then was appealed and made its way to the Supreme Court. And it's interesting to note that in the case, the Sierra Club really made the conscious decision not to name Disney as a defendant because they knew that it was such a, you know, well-loved company that it might kind of shoot them in the foot to include them in the suit. So the suit was really against the U.S. government, against the Forest Service, against the Park Service that were sort of allowing this resort to happen. And some of the violations that they found were rules within these agencies. And the Supreme Court decision, sort of surprisingly, the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of the government, in favor of letting the development go forward. So you'd think that would be sort of the easy end of the story. But really what happened is that there were a couple kind of famous dissents in this case that ended up being a bigger deal than the decision itself that really pointed to the idea of 
areas like Mineral King should sort of have the right to advocate for themselves that, you know, in a, in a sense, Mineral King could be the plaintiff in a case like this. And there's a famous dissent, you know, do trees have standing? Do <laughs> natural areas have standing to bring these suits for themselves? And at the same time in their decision, the Supreme Court actually included kind of a famous footnote to the Sierra Club saying, you know, you can go refile your suit if you'd like, just do a better job of showing how this development is going to affect you personally. So in a sense, those are competing ideas, but in another sense, sort of those together laid kind of a blueprint for other groups to go forward with litigation like this. And that in combination with some new federal laws around development and environmental impact statements really sort of made it more difficult for developments like the Mineral King development to get actually off the ground. I will say I am all for the protection of nature. And I, I really, you know, I'm a believer, I suppose. That's a, that's a way to put it. I am a member of the Sierra Club. I think what they do is a good thing. This really, this decision has had an impact, though, a big one. And, and on the ski tourism industry, it, it really was uh, pivotal, an important time. Yeah, it was. I mean, there really weren't, if you look at kind of the history of ski resorts, there weren't a lot of major resorts sort of built after this time, largely because of some of these things that took place right around the Mineral King decision and development. Hi, it's Paul. We'll be right back with Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, authors of the new book, Disneyland on the Mountain. You're going to want to stay tuned because we are going to talk about the 100th anniversary of the Disney Company, among many other things. So please... Stay tuned. You know, I mentioned our sponsor, Stitch Fix. Wouldn't it be great if you had the right wardrobe to match your evolving lifestyle? Well, Stitch Fix can do that. I can tell you from my personal experience, Stitch Fix makes that dream a reality. They have helped me and Gretchen redefine our style for our golden years without breaking the bank. With Stitch Fix, you're not just shopping, you're building a relationship with your very own stylist who understands your taste and lifestyle. Believe me, it's like having a fashion expert right in your pocket. You share your style, your size, your budget, and you do this all via a quick style quiz. Then you sit back and you wait for your fix. A personalized package of five items shipped right to your doorstep. Sizes range from extra small to triple XL. So they've got everybody covered and you try the items on at home. Then you decide what to keep. You send back what you don't want. All this is hassle-free with free shipping and returns. Plus, their expansive collection of over a thousand brands ensures there's always something new to discover. As you interact with your fixes, the selections get more precise. It's almost like your stylist is learning right along with you. It's a retail experience that grows with you, literally. Both Gretchen and I have tried Stitch Fix and found it to be a style revelation. Gretchen was so thrilled with the cashmere sweater and tailored pants that they sent her. And I love my new blazer. Finally, fashion that respects our age and our individuality. Don't let fashion be a hassle. Opt for a personalized, easy, and enjoyable shopping experience. Head over to stitchfix.com slash N-O-B. Thanks, Stitch Fix. They just get me. And they'll get you to try stitchfix.com slash N-O-B today, and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash N-O-B. All this will be in our show notes. Thanks, everybody. 
Is there a season better than fall? (laughs) Hi, it's Paul. I want to mention our sponsor, Brook Linen. And I want to absolutely call to everybody's attention the crisp air, the vibrant colors, and the comfort of being indoors during fall and winter. Speaking of comfort, let me share something that has brought a new level of luxury to my fall routine, Brook Linen Sheets. I spent last night wrapped up in Brooklinen's award-winning long staple cotton sheets. And let me tell you, the experience was nothing short of heavenly. I woke up feeling refreshed as if I'd slept in a five-star hotel right in my own bedroom. Founded by the husband and wife duo Rich and Vicky in 2014, Brooklinen has made it their mission to bring us hotel-quality bedding at a fraction of the price. Don't just take my word for it. These internet-famous sheets have garnered over 100,000 five-star reviews and have been endorsed by experts at Good Housekeeping and Wirecutter. Quality and longevity are stitched into every inch. If you're looking to transform your home this season, consider the bed and bath bundle. It's not just a purchase. It's an investment in your comfort, and you can save up to 20%. 5%. So experience the difference for yourself and check out Brooklinen's fall collection. Visit in-store or online at brooklinen.com and use the code NOB for $20 off your online order of $100 or more. That's brooklinen, B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Use the promo code NOB for $20 off. Again, we are with authors Greg Glasgow and Catherine Meyer. They've written the new book, Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort that Never Was. I loved the book, but I, you know, I'm not the only one. And, and importantly, <laughs> importantly, Michael McCloskey, of course, the famously former uh, Sierra Club conservation director, has said, a gripping in-depth look at the people and the forces that shaped the outcome at Mineral King, the ski resort that wasn't built, the Supreme Court decision that opened the courts to causes, and the national park that became bigger. Wonderful review and wonderful sentiments. Let's talk a little bit more about the book because, I, you know, I enjoyed the firsthand interviews. You know, I I was kind of around John Krebs. I knew I knew of some of this going on. Um, Michael McCloskey was absolutely very much in the news and, and a long time uh, advocate of of nature. Maybe share with us both of you. Maybe give us your you know kind of some of these really wonderful insights that you developed in, in writing the book and and maybe an anecdote or two that that our readers that that our listeners really our audience and readers of the book are going to find so so interesting and intriguing yeah thank you so much um we yeah mike mccloskey was has been was so wonderful as you mentioned um he was such an important source in our source in our book and um so mm-hmm. helpful and such an amazing guy mm-hmm yeah, I mean, so many people uh, that were vital to telling the story, a couple interesting things that people might be interested in. You know, we talked both sides and both sides are represented on this, the Disney side, the environmental side, which is, again, pivotal to really understanding this entire story. Um, on the Disney side, we talked to a couple of Disney employees, which was fascinating to see kind of, you know, what, you know, what was important to them, why they wanted to do this. But um, a funny thing to note is Disney was historically, you know, kind of kept things close to the vest. They wanted to, 
to kind of surprise people and um, they didn't want people to basically steal some of their ideas. And because there was actually this bid for, you know, who wants to develop this area in Mineral Cane and, and Disney was one of the people that, that bid on this project and of course ultimately had won. But at the time, um, a couple of Disney employees were staying in a hotel and they said that they were looking for wires and microphones and recording devices because they were worried that people were listening in and trying to kind of find out what Disney was planning for this project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that, was a, that was a funny one. We have a great character in the book by the woman uh, uh, by the name of Jean Coke who sadly, she actually just passed away a couple months ago, actually at the age of 100. Um, but she was a phenomenal force in kind of leading some of this opposition as well. She actually owned a cabin in Mineral Cane and um, would, would do things like put up flyers and put up donation jars and the forest rangers would come and take them down and she would put them right back up again and um, but she would. She wrote hundreds and hundreds of letters. Um, she uh, started all these protests and was a, just a phenomenal, um, you know, person who uh, who was leading this development in a very important time for the environmental movement and, of course, also the women's rights movement. So she was a great character. We're excited for for people to to learn more about her. Yeah, there's a great picture in the book of the Coke cabin, the family cabin. That's just. Yes you know, just buried in snowfall. I I love that picture. The other pictures in the book are so wonderful too. You know, there's, there's some artwork that definitely does not look like Disney, what I would think to be Disney related artwork, very, yeah. you know, kind of hand drawn, but, but um, very appealing. And then there's this really wonderful picture. I, I'd never heard of Sport Goofy before. So I, I wonder if you tell us about, maybe Greg, tell us about Sport Goofy, what, what Sport Goofy represented and, um, and how that came about. <laughs> Cause I, I thought that was yeah. <laughs> Sport Goofy is great. So yeah, so we're sort of in the book by talking about some of the long-term uh, impacts and long lasting legacies of this whole mineral King battle and project. And one of the things that we found in our research is that here in Colorado, the Vail Ski Resort, which is Colorado, by the way, is where Catherine and I live. Mm-hmm. Um, the Vail Ski Resort here in the 80s was kind of going through some tough economic times, and they were looking for a way to sort of differentiate themselves among all the resorts in Colorado. And they hit on the idea of sort of becoming a family-friendly ski resort. And just coincidentally, the CEO of Vail at the time was friends with the then president of Disney. And the Vail CEO actually traveled to California. He had heard of Mineral King. He looked at some of the plans to kind of get inspiration. And then one of the results of all this was that Disney, in kind of a rare move, licensed one of its characters outside of the parks and created this sport goofy character who was just a big goofy kind of in ski gear, (laughs) giant dog, of course, that would roam around the resort and like go to the ski school and talk to the kids. And he would lead a lot of the events, do different ribbon cuttings and was just kind of a positive presence and kind of the mascot really avail for a number of years. It just really reinforced this idea that, you know, we're the family friendly, you know, as people kind of said at the time, you know, they're sort of the businessified 
ski resort and that, yeah, that's sort of how sport goofy came to be. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I love, it. I love that. And the, the rest of the pictures are, are amazing in the book too. So oh. again, congrats. You really pulled this, really pulled this together. So, so well. So Walt, and the Sierra Club are on opposite sides. But Walt had a love, Walt Disney had a love of nature, and, and it influenced his design of of Mineral King, the design phase, but other projects too. So I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about, you know, kind of where Walt stood in, in terms of his just passion for nature. and Yeah, and that was so important and, and surprising also, you know, mm-hmm. to us in our research about how genuine this project was for Walt Disney. He, when he visited Mineral King, he said it was one of the most beautiful um, places that he had ever been and he wanted to keep it that way. And I think that is so important to note. And so when he was planning this, you know, he wanted to camouflage the ski lifts. He wanted to put things in parking underground again, just to kind of preserve the area for people to really understand its beauty, not to have everything kind of built up and, you know, kind of clogged um, in that way. And he, you know, nature and wildlife was actually kind of this common theme that he had had throughout his entire life. You know, you see it in films like Bambi. He really mm-hmm. wanted nature to, you know, play a, a real role. He brought animals into the the studio so artists could really draw them realistically, things like that. And actually, another interesting thing was that in the in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, he created this series of wildlife documentaries, and you could read more about that in our book. But again, to just kind of educate people on wildlife, all these different areas throughout the world, all these animals and where where they're from, you know, what characteristics they had, how important that was. And it actually, when people were watching it, that actually kind of spurred a lot of people to become environmentalists. The same environmentalists that were that were fighting him actually grew up on some of these wildlife documentaries, um, which was was so so interesting. And another interesting thing was that he actually was lauded. Walt Disney was lauded with a bunch of awards from environmental groups, um, you know, for his efforts for these wildlife documentaries including, ironically, in 1955, he was awarded a Lifetime Membership Award um, from the Sierra Club, which is the the club, of course, that um, eventually sued his project. Mm -hmm. So, very fascinating. Yeah. And some of this environmental stewardship, you know, it, it, it continues within the Disney culture and company to this day. Is that, is that a fair thing to say, a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, there's still a huge area, wildlife preserve area in Disney World um, that Disney, I think, I don't know if they control it anymore, but it's something that they certainly included as part of the planning process there. And then, of course, you know, you look at a park like Animal Kingdom and Walt Disney World that's sort of completely devoted to nature, wildlife, all this stuff. And, you know, a lot of the hotels have sort of these nature motifs, these natural national parks motifs. Actually, in Disneyland Paris, there's even a Sequoia Hotel, which, you know, in a way brings it kind of full circle from Sequoia National Park, which is now where Mineral King is. So, yeah, I think you look back and you look today and, you know, Disney's still making wildlife documentaries with their Disney nature arms. So there's a lot going on. And even in um, California Adventure and Disneyland, there's a Redwood Challenge Trail, which is a very experiential kind of outdoor recreational part of that park that in some ways echoes what might have been at Mineral King. And you can just kind of see this thread that goes through 
from Walt all the way to today with how important that kind of ethos is to them. Yeah, I'll even say, you know, the California Hotel at Disneyland and the Awani Hotel in Yosemite almost have kind of a similar look and feel, at least it gives that off to me a bit. And and I I thought that that was, you know, that was also a nod perhaps to this environmentalism that, you know, Walt Feld and the company just lives on today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we mentioned that in the book, actually. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, the Grand, the Grand Californian Hotel really is like, with all the research we did, it's almost, you could imagine that hotel sort of being the gateway to Mineral King had it been built. There's so many echoes, you know, and they have the lights that are sort of meant to mimic tree branches. And they have, you know, these giant soaring beams that are supposed to be sort of ski lodge meets National Park Lodge. And yeah, so much of, of what they've done, almost to a surprising degree, they have several hotels and their different properties that uh, mimic that kind of architecture and that kind of feel. Wonderful stuff, uh, Greg Glasgow and, and Catherine Merritt. Let, let's talk about Walt's death, because that certainly changed things. Did it mark a turning point in the in the project's fate without that kind of person and personality at the kind of the helm? It definitely did. He, Walt Disney died at the end of, of 1966 and it was pretty sudden and unexpected. And, you know, a lot of the environmental opposition, uh, it really picked up steam after Walt passed away. And, you know, Walt was a very likable, gregarious guy. And of course he had been awarded, you know, a lot of um, awards, of course, from these environmental groups and things like that. So we, so we certainly wonder you know, what could have happened if he had lived? Would he have kind of talked to some of these groups? Would he have calmed down some of this opposition? Because again, it was coming from a genuine place. He wanted people to experience and see an area that they might not have have seen. Um, At the same time, what's interesting is that, you know, this was really Walt's baby. He really wanted to make this happen. This was so important to him. And other people in the company at first weren't exactly sure why why he wanted this how it fit in his brother Roy who took over after Walt passed away he had made comments kind of behind the scenes saying we're in the amusement park business we're in the movie business we're not in the ski business hmm. um and so you know some of that was kind of uh, was kind of brought up at the same time when Walt did pass away Roy uh, sent out a, a statement to employees, a press release to the world saying, we're going to make Walt's dreams come true. We're going to forge ahead. We are going to have, we're going to make this mineral cane resort happen. And we're going to make the Florida re- project happen, which then became the Walt, uh, the Walt Disney world, of course. And, you know, I think that was a lot of the momentum actually and motivation for the Disney company was we want to make Walt's dreams come true. We want to forge ahead with this. And I think a lot of that actually played into some of this opposition where this was kind of their, their comeback to them. Like Walt wanted this. This is extremely genuine. We have to, we need to make this happen for Walt. And I think that actually was a lot of the, the motivation for keeping this, um, for keeping going with this, even, even with this opposition. Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, our guests today, they've authored the new book, Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort that never was. The timing for the book uh, is 
is really perfect too. It's so ideal. We're at the 100th anniversary of the Disney Company, and I wonder if you both leave us because we're we're at the end of our time together, sadly. And and again, I appreciate so much your generosity. But but kind of final question for you is how how do you view the book in terms of contributing to our overall understanding? Uh, of the Disney company, its history. and Yeah. I mean, we'd love to say that this timing is intentional, that we <laughs> <laughs> made it so the book comes out in the yeah. 100th year of Disney, but actually it was purely coincidence, but well, a very happy coincidence. Yes. Thank you. Yes. And, you know, the, the Mineral King story is something that you sort of see bits and pieces around. You read it, you know, it, there's a, maybe a paragraph in a Walt Disney doc, uh, biography here and there, but, you know, the whole story really had never been told surprisingly to us. So, I mean, I think our hope is just that people get a better understanding of what this battle was all about, what this resort was all about. And it all happened, you know, you mentioned 100 years of Disney. This happened sort of right, almost in the middle of that 100 years and right, you know, paradoxically, the end of Walt's life, but also such a fertile time for Disney when they had just opened Disneyland, were just planning Walt Disney World, Mary Poppins came out around this time. So many different things were happening. The 1964 World's Fair that they were involved in, that they developed so many um, attractions and technologies for. So really, you know, the hope is that people just come away seeing what a pivotal time this was for Disney and kind of how this fit into the whole picture. And yeah, the fact that it comes in the 100th anniversary year of Disney is great. And again, you know, looking at how this reverberates through things like Bales, through things like a lot of the Disney hotels and things like that. I think it just hopefully shows the impact of this chapter on the ongoing history of Disney. Mm-hmm. So well told. I, I, I love the book. And, and again, uh, many others are enjoying it too. Um, just to, to wrap up finally, again, you know, getting back to Michael McCloskey, he just says, what a story splendidly told. So, you know, it's not just me. Everybody is is seeking this, <laughs> echoing it. You guys did a great job. Congrats on everything, the research process, all of your insights into this wonderful time and story and impact, I think, on, on uh, the world environmentally. Thank you, Greg Glasgow and, and uh, Catherine Mayer for joining us today. Greg, thanks again for reading. And Catherine, thanks so much for all of your time and efforts. But guys, have a great rest of your day. And, you know, as you do more work, especially in, in, uh, in this area and others, please come back and join us again. Aww. Yeah, yes. we'd love to. Thanks so much, Paul. Great talking to you. Yes. Paul, thank you so much. That's a pleasure. Oh, guys, thank you. My thanks to our sponsors today, Brooklinen and Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is the personal style service for men and women that evolves with your tastes, needs, and lifestyle. And Brooklinen. Brooklinen was built to deliver simple, beautiful, high-quality home essentials at a fair price. Please check out our show notes today for more information about our sponsors. Support them as they enthusiastically support the show. My thanks to you. Always our Not Old Better show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well. Be safe. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better show on radio and podcast. We will see you next week. Thanks, everybody.